Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The town of Nizza Monferrato is nestled in Asti's Belbo River Valley. With preserved ancient architecture, a centuries-old bell tower, archways, and cobblestone streets, this seemingly quiet and quaint town has had quite an impressive presence in the Piedmonte over the last 800 years or so. It was fought over by various European monarchies as a key strategic location, a gateway to powerful cities in the south in a push for land farther down the peninsula. The 17th century was a dark century, marked with multiple tumultuous fights and power struggles, and devastating plague outbreaks that took their toll on the community. During the Industrial Revolution, many young girls from the country sought jobs in the neighboring cities, and when they arrived, they found themselves at risk to homelessness and hunger, and in need of job skills to stay off the streets. This transition in the mid-1800s from agriculture jobs to city jobs can be seen in the life details of local saint Maria Mazzarello. Maria's parents were vineyard workers, but after a bout with typhoid fever, she couldn't work in the fields with them, so she apprenticed as a seamstress during the area's textile boom when this region was known for silks. Maria founded a refuge nearby for street girls to house them and teach them sewing. Today, Nizza Monferrato is more well-known for wine than silks, and Barbera is the prized grape variety. Locals likely drank Barbera in the 1800s, and the grape expanded in popularity as winemakers struggled to replant their vineyards after the phylloxera epidemic in the late 1800s. By the early 1900s, Barbera was a vinous voice of Asti. In addition to Barbera and the wine industry, the town is famous for an agricultural product called cardo gobo, a thistle-like plant that looks a bit like a curved stalk of celery, but it tastes more like an artichoke. Local growers bury the plant underground towards the end of the growing season, and it loses its chlorophyll and bitterness. It takes on a whitish-yellow color, and it becomes extremely palatable. While underground, the plant pushes to the surface, seeking sunlight and takes on a distinctive curve due to this particular style of cultivation. On a more sobering note, 
It's impossible to mention the history of this town without noting Nietzsche-Mann Ferrato's involvement in World War II. The town found itself caught in the crosshairs of dangerous ideologies. Walking through the romantic and sort of quiet town, you might never suspect the bravery of its citizens in the face of some of the world's most dangerous ideas. In the 1940s, Nietzsche Manferrato played a crucial role in the fall of fascism and the end of World War II. Mussolini had recently been ousted from power and imprisoned. Then he was rescued by Nazi Germany and strategically installed by Hitler in Northern Italy. Mussolini organized a new fascist state called the Italian Social Republic, and this triggered a new clash of fascist and anti-fascist ideologies in the area. Anti-fascist groups in many northern Italian cities launched a type of guerrilla war on the Italian Social Republic in late 1944. Nietzsche Monferrato served as a center of anti-fascist sentiment in a time when nearby Mussolini had strong Nazi support. And in 1944, Nietzsche Monferrato managed to declare a type of freedom and organize themselves under self-rule for about three months. Several other cities liberated themselves as well and formed a free zone. Though most of these strongholds lasted only a few months, this resistance sent a big message to global powers and it helped to signal the end of World War II. After weathering a politically tumultuous harsh winter, Allies gained control of Northern Italy in the spring of 1945, and Nietzsche Monferrato could begin its healing. Part of that healing was a recommitment to the region's products, like Cardogobo and Barbera. Since the 1950s, Nietzsche Monferrato has struck a unique balance between honoring the city's ancient past, including preserving architecture from the 1300s through the 1600s in many parts of the city, and modernizing a bit to encompass a current identity, such as turning the historic cattle market into a community center. The same negotiation between past and present can be found in some of the area's local wineries. Keep listening to hear more from one winery who's based out of this interesting, important, and enchanting town in northern Italy. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
Martina Barosia of Scarpa in Nizza. Hello, how are you? Fine, thanks. And you? Very nice to see you. So what's the history of Scarpa? When did it begin? Uh, the winery was founded in uh, 1854. In the last 100 years, for sure, one of the most important personality of our history was Mario Pesce. I met him uh, in 2001 when uh, my mother started to work in, uh, in Scarpa. And my mother had the pleasure to uh, work with him for four years before his death. And I had the pleasure to meet him in person. And even if I was uh, just a teenager, Mario Pesce, I think, was a very smart man because uh, he had the possibility in the 60s to uh, study in, in France. So um, he had the possibility to bring something from France to Italy, to Piemonte. And Mario um, was very, very interesting in having an excellent traditional wine, but also, for example, a fantastic old-style image. So if today you could have a, a bottle of Scarpa and you could uh, have a very old-style bottle, um, we have also traditional wine inside, and this match is thanks to Mario Pesce. So, you know, sometimes you find a very traditional style label and inside the wine is not really uh, traditional. With Scarpa, you have both old-style image and traditional wine, thanks to Mario Pesce for sure. Then he spent uh, 100% of his life in the winery and he decided to start to make an excellent Barbera. When Mario Pesce was young, Barbera in Piemonte was uh, a very everyday wine. In most of the cases, it was uh, vinified uh, white, so this is something unbelievable today. And uh, it was anyway very easy drinking. With Mario Pesce, Barbera has changed a lot. Uh, one of his best friends, Giacomo Bologna, and him um, spent a lot of dinners together. And they had, at the end, the same idea. We could create uh, a very, very important Barbera. Mario Pesce preferred to have a more traditional, hostile Barbera. So the idea at the base was the same, a long uh, Barbera that you could lay age for so many years, for a long period. The one of uh, Scarpa uh, was, and his, with French allié oak. Mario Pesce decided to use French Allier oak since the beginning and not Slavonian oak because his idea was uh, that uh, the elegance of French Allier oak was perfect with Barbera, with the acidity of Barbera. And so he created La Bolliona. La Bolliona is uh, our best crew at the moment. Um, and where's that crew? In Castello Rocchero. Castello Rocchero is a very small uh, village. Uh, near Nizza Monferrato, where we have the historical address. And it's uh, in the heart of our Poderibricchi. Poderibricchi is the name of our estate. We have 50 hectares, but just 25, 27 uh, hectares with vineyards. La Bayoni is a sandy parcel. Yes. Sand for us is very important because sand always keeps to the wine elegance and saltness. And in Bologna, you could find a lot of elegance and a lot of complexity. And with Barbera, the, the baby plants, for example, they were planted uh, around 40 years ago. There, there wasn't one clone, so this is very important. It means that in our vineyards, we find different DNA plants. And this is very important because we want to face the new disease, like, for example, Flavescenza dorata, where there's a difference in the DNA. So having a, a multiplicity of clones has helped you with this pest? Yes, 
you know, there are different ways in which you could face the new disease. In our vineyards, for example, we don't make any treatment against oidio because uh, the weather is so good, the position is so good, we have a lot of wind daily. So this is not our problem. But uh, a new disease like Flavescenza dorata that is almost uh, a mystery disease because nobody knows exactly the cause of this disease, um, you could face uh, in a chemical way, but I think the best way to face this disease is in a natural way. And uh, preserving the balance of your land for me, this means that you could not plant vineyards for 50 hectares. You have to plant vineyards for a small portion and try to leave the other parts of the area with forest. So we try to respect the microbalance of the area. This is the first way to face diseases in general. And the second, for sure, is uh, to have different clones uh, into the vineyards. Have some been more susceptible than others to Flavicenza dorata? Yes, in general but uh, mainly in the new vineyards, not in the old ones. That's interesting. So this is why one of the theory is that the insect that uh, brings the Flavicenza dorata is uh, from the place in which the baby plants are growing up. From the nursery. So, uh, yes, from the nursery, exactly. This is a theory, and I think that it could be true. This is why we have a lot of problems with Flavicenza dorata, especially in the new vineyards. The old ones, you know, uh, they have so, so many years, uh, so many decades, uh, and I think they, if you continue to take care of them and to feed them, not too much, uh, they will survive, definitely. At the moment, you know, there are some new experiments, some new uh, varieties that they have been uh, genetically created uh, to face um, Oidio, uh, Flavicenza dorata, Peronospera. They have planted, for example, a few kilometers far from Haas. And after one year and a half, they've been checked by, you know, uh, university students and so on. And they discovered that, uh, yes, now they have found out some varieties that they could not be damaged by Oidio, Peronospera but not from Flavicenza dorata. So I think that uh, the only way to face new problems in general is to use the old rules. So not only for, for making wines or for taking care of the vineyards, uh, also for, you know, current uh, world uh, problems. The best way is just to uh, use the old rules in a very smart way. So I think this is a good idea to be used in, in each part of his life. So you make a couple Barbera, and one of them is from a more clay parcel. Yes, we have two single vineyards. One is La Boliona from sand, so deep, elegant, complex, sometimes with dark black fruits. And then there is Ibriki. Ibriki is a very nice Barbera. A little bit fatter on the palate, especially because uh, you know from the clay wines in general are always more rounded, uh, very very drinkable. You uh, you could wait just few years and not uh, decades, uh, and you will have a very very good Barbera since the beginning. So this is the main difference from Bricchi and La Boliona. Moreover, Bricchi has always a very strong cherry note. La Boliona has always a very strong plume knot. So this is the main difference from this crew. And, uh, but sometimes during the tasting, 
la bouillona is good, but pricky is brilliant. Um, so the rule is that uh, la bouillona is the Barbera from Scarpa that you could age for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. At the moment, we have available 90. But sometimes, uh, especially during blind tasting, bricky could give you very, very nice feelings and a nice surprise. You know, this is nature. And wine uh, is something very natural, or must be something of very natural. And uh, I had the possibility in Scarpa, I'm very lucky, I know, to check the wines during the last seven years. It means that I had the possibility to drink the vintages in different moments of their life. And it's uh, amazing because one year you taste the wine and say, hmm, maybe it's not ready or maybe it's gone. The year after you taste again and say, oh my God, what happens? This is fantastic. For example, around two weeks ago, we had um, a pallet in a, a corner of our winery. Uh, and we find out around 1,000 bottles of Fraser 94. We tasted one. Uh, I tasted several Fraser 94 in the last seven years in different, uh, uh, not only from the winery, but also in some restaurants and some uh, wine shops all over the world. And friendly was not exactly uh, my wine or a good vintage. Now, 94 Fraser is very, very uh, incredible uh, Fraser. You now have the possibility to drink Fraser of more than 20 years without any oak aging. So it means that this is what exactly they have done in 94. And 94 was not uh, a very good vintage, was a difficult vintage. And Fraser 94 is still very, very fresh and amazing. So I'm, I know that I'm, I'm lucky so to have this a sort of, you know, library wines inside the house uh, and we could just pick one bottle each day and decide, okay, tonight we are going to have a Bricky 96 and tomorrow Fraser 99. Because so. Mario Pesce kept a library of vintages back to World War II. Yes. Scarpa had the possibility in the past and has nowadays to do this, thanks to Mario Pesce and thanks to the long tradition. So uh, I think that something is changing. When I started to sell uh, Scarpa wines uh, in 2007-8, it was uh, not exactly the same uh, like nowadays. At the beginning of uh, 2005, 2006, uh, uh, there was a big change in the wine world taste and people started to have uh, traditional wines and to stop a little bit to drink the modern ones. But um, they were very, very against the old vintages. So uh, I remember that I was in Singapore for my first trip. And uh, I had with me Barbera Ibriki 2001, Barbera La Bolliona 2001, and I was uh, at my desk and, uh, and people that were coming and were trying the wines, in most of the case they used to say, no, no, it's too hot, I'd want to taste it, it's too, too hot. And for me it was a very surprise because... I was young and uh, my experience was mainly in scapel wines, so I knew that the wines were good and uh, I could understand why they could not give also one chance to these wines. Uh, in the last uh, four years, 
this uh, situation ha has completely changed. And now people are, are always very keen in tasting not only an old wines, but a very good aged one, and to taste the history of the winery. Uh, I'm happy too, because uh, there are some wineries that are starting to do the same. Uh, maybe they are younger, but uh, they are starting to say, okay, now I put 100 bottles in, my, in the corner of my, my house and uh, uh, I leave them for 5-10 years and uh, let's see uh, what will uh, it's going to happen. So for me, it's, it's very important. I was at um, a rouquet tasting. We make a lovely rouquet. And uh, two months ago, I attended a rouquet tasting in Turin, uh, and uh, we were around 15 wineries. Uh, on 15 wineries, uh, uh, 13 had uh, 2015 <laughs> as vintage, Scarpa had uh, 2011, and there was another winery that had uh, uh, 2009. So... I know that we are just two on 15 uh, wineries, but you know, in the past, Scarpa was completely alone. So now uh, I think that uh, step by step, uh, a lot of, of, the, of other wineries uh, are starting to uh, understand this uh, and to approach this philosophy. Drinking uh, aged, drinking uh, old. So this is the best for me. So with the La Baglione, which is in many ways the most famous wine of Scarpa, mm -hmm. how does that change over time, that Barbera? What kind of characters start to come out? Uh, making a blind tasting with, uh, with Bolliona is always a pleasure. First, because they, uh, in most of the case, it's not recognizable as Barbera. So I could say that uh, the way of aging of Barbera is very close of uh, the way of aging of Nebbiolo in general. Uh, so most of the case, uh, old Bolliona seems uh, an old Barbaresco. Then, of course, I found people that could recognize this maybe could be an old Barbera d'Asti. Anyway, the elegance of uh, Bolliona, of Barbera d'Asti, is quite close to the elegance of Barbaresco in general. So the match in the mind is very easy to be done. And by that, do you mean the kind of acidity that you might encounter when you say elegance? Yes, exactly. Um, when the Barbera is very young, you find a lot of freshness. Or if we could speak in a very friendly way, you find a lot of acidity. <laughs> and uh, this acidity is very important because it's the main reason why Barbera could last for so many years. Uh, anyway, for Barbera and for La Bulliona, we work with high acidity and high acidity after years becomes smooth, rounded, lower. And so you start to have a very nervous Barbera. And after 20 years, you find uh, a lady with velvet, uh, velvet notes on the palate. At the moment, uh, I think the best uh, Bulliona that I had uh, ever is 90. Uh, Bolliona is, is amazing from 90. And then you find there is uh, 96 with the sea line uh, notes, 97, a prelude to 2000, because to in 97 we had uh, a very hot summer. And so uh, it's a sort of uh, prelude to the vintages that we uh, had after 2000. And it's an excellent Barbera at the moment. And then we, you have the very Delicate, but at the same time, uh, a little bit outstanding, rude uh, Bouillon 98, 
with a lot of acidity at the beginning. Now it's very, very uh, good for drinking. And then you have the special 2000, for example. So in 2000, uh, we made, uh, has, uh, in a traditional uh, way, uh, the harvest, uh, um, for example, of dolcetto um, during the, the second half of September. Barbera um, in the first half of October. But uh, in 2000, we had this very deep change into the climate and uh, 2000 was very hot. So in some way, and in general, the wines from 2000 vintage are always a little bit overmature because uh, people, uh, and in this case also Scarpa, uh, was not ready to harvest before. Uh, and it was something completely uh, strange. The tradition told you that uh, you have to harvest Bolliona Barbera in the first half of October, not before. For example, of course, 2000, if you taste now 2000, it's not the best vintage of La Bolliona. But it's very important if you want to understand, uh, first, how is important tradition in Piemonte. <laughs> because we were pushed to do first what tradition was telling you and then was chemical analysis was telling you about the grapes. And second, anyway, it's, it's very important because it's a sort of uh, historical moment in which... Uh, Anyway, everybody from Piemonte and from Italy started to, to make different wines in some way because the um, climate condition uh, changed it completely. So this is why now we have to follow the old rules, as I told you before, but uh, in a smart way. So, and it's hard to, to match every day these two uh, opposite forces, tradition and the present uh, problems. I think when you have that kind of library mm -hmm. and history, mm -hmm. it, it's probably very apparent that there's a change in terms of the weather conditions because you're regularly trying the older wines. Yes, you find always when there is a vertical, I, I always uh, choose to put some vintages before 2000 and some vintages after 2000 in order to let people understand that something has been changed. And uh, uh, it's like studying history. La Baglioni being a sandy parcel, do you see very big differences between the warmer vintages, some of which you mentioned, and the cooler vintages, some of which you mentioned? Yes, the difference is quite uh, deep. This is why sometimes it seems to have not exactly two completely different wines, because you could understand that they are Barbera and they are coming from the same parcel. But... Uh, of course, uh, Barbera with the warm temperature becomes a very important wine. So I think that if the idea of Mario Pesce was to uh, make an important, a great Barbera that you could age for 20 years, this idea was very difficult in the 80s, in the 90s. After 2000, we, we have become very lucky and it's very easy because uh, we have we had a lot of warm summers and uh, so the change was very very deep in the fresh cool vintages we can say that uh, uh, the most outstanding uh, notes in la bolliona are the notes of uh, sea lion acidity in general uh, less fruits and less alcohol for sure in the very great in the greatest vintages you find alcohol deep dark fruits uh, in more complexity for sure and barbera 
um, express the best during the warm vintages. So I think that the high temperature in Piemonte after 2000 has become a problem mainly for Nebbiolo and for maybe some aromatic wines. Uh, Ruque is never happy if the weather is too much warm uh, because it's an aromatic variety. They need not too much sun, not too much water for sure, more balanced vintages like 2001, for example, in which we had, yes, a warm summer, but a lot of uh, cool days and definitely one of my best favorite vintage from uh, the ones after 2000. So La Bayoni, when you go back to the old vintages, do you see that warmer vintages or cooler vintages age better? Lighter vintages, uh, they are thin since the beginning, but after 20 years, they, in most of the case, look younger than the, great, the greatest vintages. I'm always happy and proud to uh, show people during a blind tasting a light vintage. Because in most of the case, nobody could recognize, okay, this is a Barbera of 25 years. No, this is a Fraser of 20 years. No, nobody uh, usually recognized the, the oldness of the wine. So why do you think Mario Pesce made such a dedication to Barbera? Why did he make that choice? Did he ever share that thinking with you? Um, I think that Mario Pesce understood that if Nebbiolo was the most important variety for Lange, Barbera was the most, and he's the most important variety for Monferrato and Astigiano. In Piemonte, there are a lot of varieties. I think that uh, the most important richness of Piemonte is varieties. We have uh, Barbera, Rouquet, Bracchetto, Fraisa. And the idea to match the variety with the, the, the land, with the area, is important because it's the only way to let the, the varieties in some way survive. For example, uh, Barbera, yes, is from, is from Nizza. Um, Rouquet is from Castagnole, even if, of course, our Rouquet, our Rouche wine is from, from our own estate in Castel Rocchero. So Mario Pesce was just someone that I had thought before, uh, before the 90s, before the 2000 uh, magazine and, uh, and journalist ideas that uh, to let these varieties survive you have to match with the land in which you you are in which you are growing up the grapes so i think this was very very modern a modern idea and uh, yes barbera i think that barbera dusty is uh, the greatest expression of barbera in general so the two barbera there's a difference in soil in terms of sand versus clay but is there also a difference in exposure or in elevation Bogliona has uh, better exposure, uh, is uh, in uh, southeast. Bricchi is uh, a little bit more in south. Okay, I know that this answer is strange because uh, since the past, uh, the rule was uh, Cru is the south exposition. Uh, again, the warmer temperature has changed this, um, this situation and uh, now the best crew are not the crew in uh, completely south, uh, south exposition. So you need to have a little bit uh, more shadow in some way during the day to preserve the most elegant, the freshness of the grapes. And so this is why always Bricky is always a little bit uh, more mature in the fruits and Bolliona has the tendency 
tendency to be uh, more acidic for sure. Again, this is uh, something very different since the past, I think. But uh, we, you know, we try to face in a smart way uh, the the situation. Also, for example, the new vineyards that we have planted of uh, Freisa of Dolcetto, we decided to to plant in uh, again southeast and not completely south exposition, and we try to cover with uh, with leaves the buds during the summer period to to preserve the the freshness of the grapes. So are there particular keys or techniques that you've learned when dealing with Barbera in the vineyard? And does it behave differently on sand versus clay in terms of the farming? In general, with Barbera in clay, you have to feed them a little bit more. For example, we started to make cover crops in 2015 and we decided to have sort of stronger mix uh, of plants for uh, Ibriki. Um, La Bogliona, so in general Barbera in sandy soil, needs less, uh, less manure and uh, this is why the terroir, the soil is basically more rich, richer, more complex and uh, we, for example, decided to have um, a quite light mix of plants for La Bogliona. So the elevage for some of your red wines is in steel, Mm -hmm. but... For La Bayone, it's not. So how does that wine get made and what is the process and timeline? We made 10 varieties. Most than 50% of our wines are made in steel. Uh, anyway, Bagliona is our you know, top Barbera. So uh, Bagliona meets wood since the beginning. The fermentation uh, happens in these truncated wooden tanks of French Elier oak again. And it could last uh, from 10 to 16 days, up to the most. And then Bogliona spent a couple of months in stainless steel tanks. And uh, around February, starts elevage in uh, big oak barrels of French Elie oak. Mm, big oak barrels for us means uh, 45, 60 hectoliters. And we use Gamba and Garbellotto. Uh, and so they made uh, barrels for us since uh, the Second World War. So Bogliona, of course, now spent uh, uh, the levage in uh, the new ones from 2001 vintage, the new barrels from Gamba and Garbellotto, uh, around 30 months. But we usually decided uh, step by step. If the vintage is very good, the aging into the barrels uh, is a little bit longer. So if it's a warmer vintage, it tends to stay longer in wood. Yes, because in some way, um, Mario Pesce used to say that uh, the way of working of a big barrel is exactly the opposite of the way of working of a barrique. If you live for a longer period into a barrique, the wine, at the end you will have um, more wooden notes. If you leave for a longer period, uh, the wine into a big oak barrel, at the end, you will have uh, a softer wooden taste. So it's very different, you know, working with barrique and, uh, and, and barrel. And why do you think he chose to use French Allier oak? If you use French Allier oak, the wooden, since the wooden feeling, the wooden note that you have in the wine is... Uh, more elegant, lighter, not long-lasting, as the Slavonian uh, élevage uh, could give to the wine. Slavonian always has a very deep influence on the wine. 
In Castagnole, Monferrato, they grow ruche. It's associated with that area. But you grow ruche outside of that zone where you have other vineyards, and you call it something else. You call it ruche, but it's the same grape variety. Yes, the, the grape variety is the same. We started to make ruche so many years ago uh, in the 70s. I have still one bottle left of ruche scarpa from 1970 in the winery. Because that's pretty uh, amazing. Actually, because, uh, you know, the priest kind of got going in the 70s. Mm-mm. And he was, a lot of times people think of him as the guy who brought ruche back. Exactly. He was the guy that brought back the ruche. Mm, he spent a lot of efforts in order to obtain a specific DOC and now DOCG for ruche. So we can say that the priest of uh, Castagnole has a very important role in a public way. Scarpa and Mario Pesce has an important role uh, in the backstage, we can say, because we started to work with Rouquet and uh, we have continued to work with Rouquet since the 70s. Anyway, Rouquet should have had the possibility to survive. So, Rouquet was uh, was called uh, by Scarpa, Rouchet, and the vineyard was uh, Bricovarolino, because Mario Pesce, of course, for these first vintages, he bought the, the grapes from Castagnole. In the 80s, they start to say, maybe we have uh, a small portion of land uh, uh, left uh, near La Boliona. It's very rich of sand, so it's very good for aromatic varieties with uh, a thin uh, skin. Because, you know, when there is a lot of uh, rainy days, sand allowed us to have less water into the vineyards. The water falls down and go away very fast. So why we could not plant some vineyards of Rouquet? So in the 80s, they have planted. And this is why from the 80s, we have Rouquet Cru Bricorosa, because this is the name of, uh, of the vineyards in Poderi Bricchi. Uh, and the experiment was very good. Uh, another very important thing is that uh, many people now... Um, has asked me, uh, which clones do you use for Rouquet? And my answer always is, uh, I don't know, because, uh, uh, again, uh, they are not clones. Uh, they are different baby plants uh, with different DNA planted in the 80s. So uh, we are one of the oldest, uh, and we have one of the oldest uh, Rouquet vineyards, uh, I think. Uh, so it's, it's very important to preserve the DNA differences also for Rouquet. Was Mario Pesce always making it dry? Because sometimes Rouquet historically is sweet. He has always make dry, uh, not sweet, because the idea is that Rouquet is uh, mm, a little bit sweet already in the notes. So older vine Rouquet or Rouquet, does that give high sugars when it's ripening in the vineyard? Because a lot of times when people talk about Rouquet, mm-hmm. They talk about a grape variety that develops fairly high sugars and can have fairly high alcohol. But is that a young vine characteristic? Does it change with time? For some winery, a high alcohol is a problem. For Scarpa, it's not exactly a problem because uh, um, in uh, our Rocher, you could not really uh, feel the uh, alcohol content, the quite high alcohol content. Sometimes we have also 15 degree, uh, but it is always very integrated, very well balanced in the wine. So um, for sure, sugar content and uh, uh, high alcohol content is something that uh, belongs to DNA, 
not too much. So it means that probably, uh, yes, the old vineyards has in gifts, buds, grapes in general with a lower uh, sugar and at the end you will find a lower alcohol content. For example, 2015 Rocher that we have made, yes, it's around uh, uh, at the moment uh, 15 degrees, but we are the beginning of the élevage. I tasted some 2015 uh, Rouquet and I found sometimes 15.5. So uh, I think for sure that uh, the youngness of the vines in some way influence the sugar content and also for sure the way of growing up the grapes. Because for example, Rouquet for us is uh, the most delicate uh, vineyard that we have. And we try always to leave uh, almost all the leaves. We don't cut any leaves into the vineyards. And it gives a lot of leaves, right? As yeah, a grape yeah, variety. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is important. Of course, mm, more alcohol you have, more leaves you have cut during the, the spring season. So it's important to cover, to protect the grapes. And another very important thing is exposition. And again, terroir. If you have a sandy soil, Water goes down, but also the the roots remain fresher. Was Mario Pache always fermenting the Rouchet in stainless steel, or did he do it in wood for a while? We passed completely to stainless steel uh, tanks in um, the at the end of the nineties. Oh, so it's really a recent thing. Uh, yes, before in the winery there was only concrete. Uh, my idea is that con- uh, concrete is good. Uh, and maybe in the future we will uh, make again experiment uh, and uh, we will come back a little bit to the past and have some concrete tanks inside the winery. But at the moment uh, we have uh, only stainless steel tanks. You know, it's easier to clean the stainless steel tank and uh, concrete could be uh, positive, but uh, at the same time negative. And you have to take care of the wines a little bit more. We have 14 levels. Sometimes we are a little bit crazy in in the cellar because we have to make, uh, you know, from September to uh, the end of October, around 10 different uh, varieties and uh, Maybe in the future. At the moment, stainless steel tanks is, uh, for us, the best solution. What is the aging curve of your Rouchet? I mean, when have you really liked old bottles and at what age? Our Rouquet is special for so many characters. And one is, uh, uh, of course, the, the lasting, the possibility of, uh, of life of this wine. Uh, at the moment, for example, we have just gone out with 2011. And the other producer, they have 2014 or 15. So um, it means that uh, if they are on on Earth, we are on Mars or something like this. And we have a lot of old vintages. So uh, 2009, 2007, 05, 01, and then also from the 90s. In general, of course, Rouquet could not last 10, 15, 20 years. From Scarpa... I think that uh, the aging possibility is of around 20 years, more or less. Uh, the oldest that we have at the moment is Rouquet from 96. So um, if you like uh, cloves, for example, in 96 uh, you find a very strong clove note and uh, match 
with some special cheese. I think that uh, it could be an amazing wine. Also, just to have a glass uh, and relax on your sofa at home. This could be a very good exper experience with, with Rocher 96. Uh, and then we have, you know, again, different vintages. Uh, they tell you a story. Uh, we have uh, 98 and 99. 99, for example, is uh, has more soil filling, we can say. Uh, 01 is fantastic, very well balanced. 03, a very hot summer, is amazing. And it's strange because uh, as we have spoken before, if we have a lot of already a lot of problem with the high alcohol content in Ruke, 2003 Ruke Scarpa should be not so good. Instead, Ruke 2003 is an amazing vintage. Alcohol has become very smooth and uh, is uh, very drinkable at the moment. I had several times with the Turbo. Uh, and it was uh, a very good experience. And then we have, you know, uh, 05, 07, uh, 09 is still amazing. And 11, 11 is an exceptional vintage. I like uh, 11 for Barbera and for aromatic wines in general. I, I think it's one of the best of the last uh, six years. And what about Fraser? Fraser, again, is one of my favorite uh, variety. Is very Piemonte style because uh, it's a little bit rude and uh, um, keep you away, especially at the beginning. Then after some years, it becomes uh, you know more calm, relaxed, and uh, you could enjoy it. Freisa for Mario Pesce uh, was the wild version of Nebbiolo. So the theory supported by Mario Pesce was uh, Freisa is the old version of Nebbiolo. This is why uh, in Freisa, what you find in Nebbiolo, uh, in Freisa you find the same notes but in a stronger way. Like tannins, especially in the first years, tannins are very strong and you have your mouth that uh, could not face them. So, Fraser is uh, something very native, we can say, autochthonous, and uh, we have the pleasure to make Fraser uh, dry and uh, completely still. I like it a lot. It's one of my favorite uh, variety. We have around one hectare of Fraser at the moment, and uh, year per year we decide if we put Fraser into wood or not. Uh, sometimes we uh, let her, her have the fermentation into the truncated wooden tanks, sometimes in, in uh, stainless steel tanks, and sometimes we prefer to have uh, an elevage of, uh, for Fraser into the big oak barrels, sometimes not. So we try to respect a lot uh, the character of the vintage. Fraser is very rude, so you have to take care of Fraser a lot if you want to have uh, a, a balanced wine. If you don't take care of Fraser, you at last you have uh, not a good wine. Definitely, I think it's one of the most difficult wine to be vinified uh, in uh, in Piemonte. So, what are some of the keys to taking care of it? I mean, what's really important? I think the most delicate moment is the fermentation period. You know, it's wild in the DNA, so you could uh, obtain good feelings. But at a certain point, you have to be careful because uh, the wild notes could come out. And so you have to check daily the situation. And 
let Freisa have fermentation as soon as possible because um, it's very wild and sometimes you could obtain not exactly the best from the grapes but also, you know, the uh, ancestral <laughs> notes that they are not really, really pleasant. And then, of course, it's important that uh, you work with acidity, um, not, not too much because if at the end, if you will have too much tannins and too much acidity, you will have a, a not drinkable uh, freezer. So it's important that the vintage is very well balanced. This is why we don't produce Freisa each year. For us, this is not possible. We prefer to keep Freisa just in the best vintages. In some vintages, we, we sell the grapes. What about Nebbiolo? Because you have a Roero-based Nebbiolo, a Barbaresco from Neve, a Lamora Nebbiolo, and then it, there was a period of time for a Monforte Barolo. So when those grapes come in, how do you start to approach those different sources for Nebbiolo? Mario Pesce was very keen, you know, in taking care of a lot of varieties from Piemonte. So I think this is why he started uh, to uh, buy the grapes for making Nebbiolo, Barolo and Barbaresco so many years ago. In the winery, when you arrive in the uh, reception area, you find there is a sort of small museum and there is a bottle of Barolo from 1948. So... The idea was, again, very modern uh, because Mario Pesce was in Nizza Monferrato, not in Langa. Uh, but probably uh, already his uncle, Pasquale, uh, understood that uh, uh, Nebbiolo uh, was the future in some way, was an excellent grape to, to work with. And so they started to buy some grapes uh, from Langa. At that time, I think that there were a few wineries of course, there were the, the historical ones, but the others um, were mainly farmers. And so it, at that time, was very easy finding out uh, grapes uh, for making uh, Barolo, Barbaresco and Nebbiolo in Nizza. At the moment, uh, the situation is completely different. Of course, uh, the Nebbiolo has become very popular in the last 20-25 years. But we should remember that uh, in the 50s, the most popular variety, the most popular wine in Italy for consumption was Dolcetto. And uh, at that time, wineries and, and farmers, they give us free samples, Nebbiolo. So if uh, the client uh, took uh, a tank of Dolcetto, okay, please, uh, I give you for free some Barolo Barbaresco because, you know, there is nobody that wants this, this wine. So today the situation is, of course, uh, exactly the opposite. Uh, and Scarpa, in some way, again, uh, could tell you this story. So this is why in the 50s and in the 60s, we had not only two, but five different uh, levels of Barolo. Unfortunately, at the moment, uh, we have found out just Tettimorra and Costa di Monforte and just few, few information, you know, uh, only by words about the three others. But my, my dream is to find out some bottles left uh, uh, somewhere in the world. Um, and maybe in, in our next interview, I will tell, yes, uh, uh, we will make, you know, uh, this Barolo from uh, uh, Serra Lunga. And uh, so um, sure that uh, at the end, my, my mission will be completed. Then at the moment, uh, uh, we have uh, Tetimorra 
and Tetineve still in production, so from Neve and from La Morra. And we have some bottles left of uh, Barbaresco Podere Barberis and uh, Barolo uh, Le Coste di Monforte. We stopped the production for Barolo Le Coste di Monforte in 1978 and for uh, Podere Barberis in 82. The history about Poderi Barberis is fantastic because uh, Poderi Barberis was the ancient name of uh, Paiore. 82 is the last vintage because uh, the owners of uh, that vineyard uh, died and uh, the son and uh, the daughter sold the portion of land and the vineyards of uh, Poderi Barberis around the uh, 83 and 84. And so Scarpa lost the possibility to buy the grapes and uh, this portion, this area became Paiore. So one of the best, uh, most famous, popular crew of Barbaresco. So who owns that crew now? At, at that time, uh, Carlo was uh, 25 years old or something like this. And he remembered that uh, when uh, the owners died, uh, Gaia, both uh, the, the vineyard and the portion of land of these uh, persons. Which vintages was that made by Scarpa? Uh, the last one of Podere Barberis that we have is still in the winery is 82. You find some, uh, some vintages with the name Podere Barberis and sometimes the same vintages without Podere Barberis because uh, after there was a sort of struggle between Gaia and Scarpa about the name and Scarpa decided to stop to use Podere Barberis because it was very matched with Paiore. So what was the first vintage of Podere Barberis? I think it was around uh, 68 or 69. Not before. And one of the things that's somewhat interesting about yourself is that you recently published a book. First of all, I'm a crime story uh, writer, but uh, crime. crime crime story yeah. writer, detective stories uh, writer, and uh, but I could not write uh, anything without you know um, had something of my. Uh, job experience, or I can say life experience. So, so you had to murder some people first. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> um, so uh, you find a lot of murders in my book and a lot of producer murdered, and wine producer, I mean, and a lot of uh, chef. Um, so um, uh, it's a sort of uh, mix between uh, my passion for detective stories and my passion for wine and food. The main characters are young people. Uh, you know, being young in Italy is not so easy. You have to face so many uh, problems. And it's about uh, a special wine. It's called uh, The Fifth Pleasure. And um, in the book, you could not find uh, what is it. So it means that I never wrote uh, this is Barolo, this is Barbera. The fifth pleasure is a wine from Piemonte. And again, this is uh, our idea. We have to promote Scarpa, uh, not Scarpa, <laughs> Piemonte and uh, the wine from Piemonte. Not only after Scarpa, Barolo, Barbaresco, Nebbiolo. So the fifth pleasure in my book is a wine, a red wine. You find, uh, of course, uh, a lot of different uh, locations. Uh, so the Carter is, uh, travels from uh, Copenhagen to New York to London and also to Barolo uh, and Montalcino. So it's uh, a nice story about uh, a wine, the fifth pleasure, 
that uh, is so famous because it's always uh, the same. It means that uh, the fifth pleasure is always a great vintage. There is no differences between, for example, 2001 and 2005. So in some way, it's exactly the opposite of a Scarpa wine. And uh, this is why it's, so, uh, it's a sort of mystery wine, because nobody could make a wine that could be the same year per year. Uh, there is a special phrase in the book. A producer says, when a formula will be created for making the same wine each year, wine producer uh, will stop to, to work because uh, we stop it to have uh, different wines for different vintages. In the end, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Uh, it's a mystery. The, there is uh, the mystery about the wine and, of course, uh, the mystery about the murders. There is uh, the first uh, wine producer to be killed is, of course, a French guy, <laughs> uh, a champagne producer in Bouzy. And then we have, you know, a Montalcino producer and only at the end, uh, a wine producer from Piemonte. So um, uh, the main character is uh, a young girl from a winery. Uh, she has taken a completely different degree in law and she's not a winemaker or something like this, but she decided to work in uh, her aunt's uh, winery just for passion. And uh, she, she, um, she tells you the wine world from inside, but with outside view. So uh, like the view that I have, I'm not uh, the daughter of a uh, uh, wine producer. I'm a daughter uh, of um, people with different jobs. Uh, I had the possibility to go in completely in the wine world, but my point of view continues to be a little bit, uh, you know, outside. So I have in common with some of my friends, uh, producer, wine producer, uh, some elements like, you know, passion. We could speak about wines and we could speak about uh, corks and labels and uh, Easter for hours. But uh, I continue to remain a little bit outside and have, have different ideas, maybe sometimes more open because uh, I'm not exactly from this world. Martina Barrosio believes in applying old methods to the current day, even if sometimes it's a mystery. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you too, Levi. Martina Barrosio of Scarpa in Nizza Monferrato in the Piemonte. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.
This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.